Okay, I think at this time we're going to let the uh, children be dismissed for junior church. Children are on their way. I want us to turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians this morning, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to be looking at a passage that dovetails off of our discussion last week on the Christian as an athlete. One of the uh, gentlemen that I meet with for Bible study on Tuesday morning at 6 o'clock mentioned to his wife that I didn't make it to the Tuesday morning Bible study. And and there's a good reason for that. Um, It's that I had a lot of late nights, the three nights before that, and early mornings, and I was just, uh, I was too tired. The wife's observation based on last Sunday's sermon was, and I think this is a bit unfair, but accurate. She said, he must have forgotten to beat his body based on Paul's admonition to beat your body and make it your slave. Uh, my body was my master on Tuesday morning when my alarm went off at uh, 5.30. And I uh, turned the alarm off and slept because I was tired. <clears throat> the passage that we're going to look at this morning, I've kind of entitled the discussion, Warning Signs. Or a caution to watch out for indifference to be aware of the tendency to become overly self-confident in our walk with the Lord. And I think the Apostle Paul is addressing a church that had an issue with pride, had an issue with self-sufficiency when he addressed the church in Corinth. And my guess is that there, probably within our church family, are some of us who wrestle with this danger of being overly self-confident of feeling like we kind of have arrived at a certain position in our Christian life so we don't have to work as hard as we used to work. And Paul is trying to drive that kind of thinking out of the life of the church in Corinth. He wants to remind them that the Christian life is not a sprint, it's a marathon, and that in that race, end of chapter 9, you train and you beat your body and you make it your slave so that you can finish the race for the glory of God. Now, In light of that context setting this up, The Apostle Paul in verse 1 of chapter 10 starts with the word for, which means that he's drawing a logical inference or connection to the preceding discussion about Christian liberty and the use of those liberties and the need to be cautious as you run the race of the Christian life, that you discipline yourself so that you finish the race effectively. Now, chapter divisions are unfortunate in our Bibles because we say, well, when we're going from chapter 9 into chapter 10, I must be changing topics. Okay? So, understand that chapter divisions aren't part of the original record of Scripture. There is a strong connection between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10. And that strong connection is that word for. Paul says, for I do not want you... Who's he speaking to now? Speaking to the brothers and sisters in Corinth who he has just challenged to see the Christian life as an endurance or marathon race. To get into that race requires strict training. To run effectively in that race requires self-sacrifice, requires great effort in preparation so that one can be effective in living their life for the glory and honor of God. Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact. I don't want you to be uninformed uh, about what, Paul? 
I think about how difficult following God can be. About how difficult a fully committed Christian life can be. About how demanding it can be as a young person and as an adult to live truly selflessly and in a self-disciplined way for the glory of God. Being a Christian, folks, is not an easy thing. Following God is not the easy life. If you want the easy life, don't follow Christ. But you won't like the ending. But if you follow Christ, it may be a difficult life, but you will love the glory that is revealed when you stand before Christ. And so Paul, as he writes to this church, bears a deep concern about them being ignorant about the nature of the Christian life. And some of them were drifting back towards this idol worship in Corinth. They were being lax in their understanding of Christian standards and Christian morality. And Paul has been challenging them over and over again, if you remember, back through the book about issues of morality and about the exercise of their freedoms in a way that is wounding others. He's cautioning them about the need to be disciplined so that they can finish the race of the Christian life effectively. So he says, starting out verse 1, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers. And what is he doing? He's using a term that brings deep love and affection even though he has serious issues with the church in Corinth, when Paul addresses them, he uses a term that infers the love of family. They are his brothers in Jesus Christ. Paul knows that. And so he's writing to them. You'll start to sense this sense of urgency, a concern that they may be running in a way that will lead to disqualification, and he's seeking to pull them back. And in an effort to drive home the point, he goes into a, a, a discourse that runs for about 13 verses that deals with the nature of Israel in the Old Testament. Okay, Israel being the people of God in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, the people of God is the church. And so Paul's going to draw now on the history of Israel as a nation, as the, if you will, pre-church, the people of God in the Old Testament. He's going to talk about experiences that they had, and here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that this passage takes on the tone of urgency and the tone of being a warning. He's holding up a sign that says, be careful. Look at verse 6. Now these things occurred to them as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things like they did. Okay? Examples that demonstrate the folly of getting caught up in the passions of the world. Verse 11. These things happen to them as examples, as types, meaning look at their experience and learn from it. So as he stretches on in verse 11, these happen to them as examples, and they were written down as warnings for us. Okay? What happened to Israel as a nation contains information that if it is honored and heeded, will lead to successful Christian living today. That's what Paul's saying. When he writes, he's approximately 1,400 years after Israel's experience of these same things. And he's pulling them up and saying, I want to talk about the nation of Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. I want to talk to you about their struggles in finishing the course that God had called them to. Because what he's going to say ultimately is some of them didn't finish the race. And so the warning stands out kind of like when you look at, a, at a, 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 a bottle of medicine. On that bottle you might read a red warning. And it says, don't 
partake of this medication if you plan to drive. Okay? One medication I historically have used is Dramamine. Okay? On that, that, that's motion sickness pills. But I want to tell you something. Motion sickness pills have a fascinating effect on your energy level. Okay? They put you to sleep. Okay? So the, the indication on the bottle, a warning. It's not a threat. It's, it's a warning. Be careful. If you partake of this medication and drive, you will endanger others. Just like, uh, let me give you an illustration. Why are there laws that tell you not to use your cell phone while you drive? Or not to text while you drive? Okay? It's because it, it's a warning to protect you and those around you. I heard a study this week, uh, someone may need to verify this for me, that they're, they're beginning to uh, kind of surmise that people who drive while texting are equally, if not more dangerous than someone driving under the influence. Maybe some of you might have seen that survey this week. Okay? Why? Because they're being distracted. So the warning is not to limit freedom. The warning is to protect life. Paul is giving warnings to the church in Corinth, not because he wants to make them unhappy. Right? And that's what we often think, don't we? Warnings and things like that are meant to restrict freedom. No, they're meant to protect the people of God and the Word of God so that they can see their way through the course of the Christian life and end for the glory of God. Happy to stand before Him. So this passage of Scripture, warnings that are meant to remove ignorance about the danger that we face as followers of Christ. Let's read verses 2 through 5. Actually, let me pick up in the middle of verse 1. Don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers, and you might write in the, in, in the column beside that you might want to write in Israel, because that's who he's talking about. We know that from the historical events that he's going to pick up his illustrations. Our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food. And they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not well pleased with Moses. Throughout uh, our series on Judges, last week we talked a, uh, a bit about Gideon and the ephod and talked about that in terms of the fact that so many things for us can either function as idols or icons. Idols being that which uh, replaces a uh, worship, replaces worship of God and a knowledge of God. And icons being these things in our lives through which we worship, through which we get to uh, um, they're, they're windows into the divine reality. Uh, and so this morning during, for our exam, we will have an opportunity not only to reflect a bit on that which functions as an icon for us uh, and to give thanks for that, but to take some time to recognize the ways in which we've turned things that should be icons into idols. So let's go to God in prayer. So begin, we'll begin as we've done throughout this, we'll, by simply reminding ourselves that we do this within the context of God's love.
one of the ways in which we encounter God's love is the way he places icons in our lives. So take some time now to reflect on the icons that God has put in your life, ways, things that have been are for you windows into the goodness of God. And there's no limit to the range, whether it's people or places or things. Give thanks for those things. Now, let's confess to God our idolatry. One way in which we can identify idols in our lives is to think about those things in our life that cause us to get angry or to feel anxiety. Those are ways, those can often be signals to the fact that we have placed an over-reliance on something. So now let's take some time to reflect on what is it that has caused us recently to get angry or overly anxious. Just look for the source of that as as an idol and to confess it, to confess your wandering heart. Please rise to hear God's words of forgiveness. I will sprinkle clean water upon you 
and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from your idols I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of of flesh. Sisters and brothers in Christ, know that you are forgiven and live at peace. God has welcomed us in Jesus Christ. He is our peace. The peace of the Lord be with you. Let us share that peace with one another. to invite the children to come forward. Today, uh, we are going to be, after you guys leave, we'll be reading a story, and part of the story is about this guy who has uh, a real hard time believing that this messenger is from God, and he's always trying to, trying to get more information and so forth. And anyway, it reminded me of a story I once read about somebody who was a mountain climber, right? And I guess he was kind of a famous mountain climber because he was being interviewed in this magazine there talking about different things. And one of the things they asked this famous mountain climber is whether he believed in God, right? And the mountain climber told a story. He said, well, one time I was climbing this mountain and my, the rope that had me tied in came loose and I was stuck on the side of a cliff. 
and I thought I was done for. And he said, so I said, if there's a God, get me off this cliff. And he said, and God didn't do anything. And so I don't believe that there is a God. Now, that's sort of an interesting story. Because I don't know if you caught this. When they interviewed him, he was alive. <laughs> he was not on the cliff. And they did not interview a ghost. Right? In seminary, we call that an answer to prayer. When you say, God, get me off a cliff, and, God, and you get off a cliff, that you think you're, you know, you're, you, you think you're stuck. Well, there it was. There's, that's what he wanted to know. That's what he wanted, and that's what he got. Well, I don't know. Some people like to go climbing cliffs and mountains, and they're not always very careful. Yeah, maybe God can help him and get out. That's, and he did. That's, you, that's right. He did. But he didn't even realize it was God that was helping him. Oh, man, we're making lots more progress in this one than I thought. Okay, what else? <laughs> it was. But he didn't. He thought, well... God didn't help me. I don't know what he's expected. Maybe he expected an angel to come down and take him to the ground. Who knows? But I think there's something interesting about it because... I don't know. An angel was taken down to... Yeah? You want a mic? That's right. That's right. Well. All right. <laughs> better than putting a box on your head. All right. Uh, so, yeah. So what I was going to say is, you know, there, it's, there are times where it may be hard to believe in God, that God's there, because, you know, you can't see Him the way you see rocks and trees or, or your parents. But, you know, I think what the, that lesson from the mountain climbers sort of can t- teach us is that if you're the best way to understand that God exists is not to sort of say, all right, God, you better do something. You better prove it to me. Because oftentimes what will happen is God may even do what you ask, but it doesn't prove it. Right? The best way to know that God is there for you and caring for you is simply to start by trusting that that is true, even if you don't always believe it. Um, it can be hard to believe sometimes, but the way God seems to work best is when you begin to trust it. Because when you begin to trust God and trust that God is there, then you begin to see all the ways in which God is caring for you and looking out for you and getting you off the side of a cliff. Then you'll be able to recognize it and you'll be so grateful. Alright, so... I hope that uh, we can keep all our lessons in mind today, and, uh, and I hope you have a great time as you continue your worship in a different place. So, let's, oh, let's pray, and then you can go. Lord God, we thank you for the fact that even we, when we can't see you, we can trust that you are there and that you will take care of us. Help us to trust. Help us to recognize the ways in which you are caring for us. And may we live as faithful people in all that we do.
trusting in your care. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before we read the scripture passage, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we open your word, as we read these ancient words from the book of Judges, we ask that you will take them and make them truly for us your word. Confront us with them and with their message. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The scripture reading is from Judges chapter 13, which is found on page 201 in your pew Bibles. The Israelites again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines forty years. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. His wife was barren, having borne no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Although you are barren, having borne no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or to eat anything unclean, for you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor is to come on his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth. It is he who shall begin to deliver Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like that of an angel of God, most awe-inspiring. I did not ask him where he came from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, You shall conceive and bear a son. So then, drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from birth to the day of his death. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, I pray, let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we are to do concerning the boy who will be born. God listened to Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But her husband Manoah was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, The man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. Manoah got up and followed his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Then Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the boy's rule of life 
what is he to do? The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman give heed to all that I said to her. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine. She is not to drink wine or strong drink or eat anything unclean. She is to observe everything that I commanded her. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, allow us to detain you and prepare a kid for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you want to prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that we may honor you when your words come true? But the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? It is too wonderful. So Manoah took the kid with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to him who works wonders. When the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar, while Manoah and his wife looked on, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord did not appear again to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah realized that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or announced to us such things as these. The woman bore a son and named him Samson. The boy grew, and the Lord blessed him. The spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanedan between Zorah and Eshtaol. The word of the Lord. So today begins the first three Sundays in which we're dealing with the story of Samson. Though in this one, he's little more than a fertilized egg. No doubt a real bohunk of a fertilized egg, like accomplishing cell division with his own bare hands. Anyway, the story begins by introducing us to a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. There's something sort of ironic about this introduction. I mean, after all that info, we expect him to do something. But as soon as he's introduced, he's abandoned. It's like the film, sort of, if, if it were on film, you'd kind of zoom in, and just as you get to him, else and cut away and go to a different scene with different actors who get none of that sort of introduction. We don't even get either of their names. And Manoah isn't too happy with being kind of a marginal character. In fact, he spends the rest of the story trying to get back into this, or to weasel back into the spotlight to try to make this thing about him. It's not enough that he gets this incredible news about a, a baby boy secondhand. He, he wants to deal with this stranger directly 
and get the, the scoop personally. I mean, part of this is probably understandable. I mean, if um, Elizabeth were to come home and say, I just met this stranger who looked like an angel, totally awesome, and now I'm pregnant, I mean, some red flags might go up and say, yeah, I might want to meet this guy. And so Manoah prays to meet this visitor, and God hears his prayer, and the messenger returns. So interestingly, the messenger returns to his wife. Manoah is again off stage. He's in the wrong place. His wife has to come and get him. Now, it's safe to say that I think, you know, that the, the, the author of Judges wants us to see this as a bit funny. You know, there, there are other places in Judges where uh, you get a sense of the ancient Hebrew sense of humor. I think the most striking example is a story we missed, the story of Ehud, and there you find that there are some similarities between the ancient Hebrew sense of humor and, like, the third grade sense of humor. It's, it's this potty humor going on there. Here the joke's a bit more polite. It doesn't depend so much on whether you think poop is funny as it depends on whether you assume that a man should sort of rule the roost. And Elizabeth, wherever you are, just so you know, I don't think this story is funny at all. Poop, on the other hand. <laughs> Mildly amusing. Anyway, lots of times jokes have sort of a socializing function. They're, they help to impose certain kinds of values. You know, for example, when I was in, in first and second grade, in addition to potty humor, you know, we would tell jokes where the, the butt of the joke was some boy who liked girls, Right? And then as I got older, the jokes were now about boys who didn't like girls, right? I mean, there's, so there's, funny or not, there's something about jokes that are an attempt to inform the kinds of values that you're supposed to have, right? Um, it's not a healthy way necessarily of socializing somebody, but that's what they do. Uh, you know, the butt of a joke is not just not only to make you laugh, but to sort of serve as a warning sometimes, you know. It's, you laugh at the person, and, and, and the message is, well, don't be like that. Don't be like that, or we will laugh at you. Well, Manoah is sort of the butt of this joke. You might assume, then, that the point of the joke is this. Men, don't be like Manoah. Rule the roost. Take charge. But that's not the point of the story. In fact... He's the butt of the joke because he's so determined to take charge. He's so determined to, to assert his control over the situation that he fails time and again to see what's going on. For instance, his wife had found this stranger awe-inspiring and determined that he was an angel. Manoah uh, notices none of that. All he can see is some dude who's been talking to his chick about having a baby. He says, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And the angel is brief but mannered. He says, I am. Manoah then launches into questions about this promised kid. He wants details about the future. What's this boy to be like and what will he do? And the angel doesn't really answer. At least he doesn't give Manoah any additional information. 
He just repeats what Manoah had already heard from his wife. And instead of telling him what the child will be like, what his manner of life will be, instead of sort of unveiling the future, the angel tells him what he's supposed to do in the present. You know, his wife should abstain from, from wine and from what's ceremonially unclean. I think there's something to be learned from this. You know, sometimes brothers and sisters in the faith can give the impression that being close to God means getting the inside scoop. We're told that God has a plan for our lives and that if, you know, if we pray enough, he'll, he'll lay it out for us. He'll kind of make it clear. You know, we assume God has this picture in mind of our future that's sort of the culmination of the plan and it has the right job and the right spouse and, and the right kids and financial investments or whatever else is supposed to have shown up in the crystal ball. And more importantly, we assume that now he has this picture, but that he's going to sort of pass on the information. And we assume that this is what it means to know God's will. But God doesn't necessarily operate that way. Sure, God has plans for our lives. You could argue that God has a clear vision of our futures. But that doesn't mean that God's necessarily going to disclose it to us. God might, but he probably won't. He doesn't disclose to Manoah what his son will do or be like in the future. But he does tell him what he and his wife need to do now. You know, stay off the wine and unclean food. God may not disclose our own futures, but he does tell us what we need to do now. I mean, here's what God wants you to do with your life. To love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you have questions about what God's will for your life is, well, it starts there. Do that, and the future will take care of itself. Now, Manoah is not satisfied with this, with knowing what he needs to do right now. He remains determined to get more out of this stranger, so he tries to you know, per persuade him to stick around for lunch. And, and, and the angel says, well, I'll not eat your food, but if you want to make a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. Now again, it seems like he's sort of dropping hints here, right? That, that there's a pretty strong hint that this is this stranger is something special. He doesn't take food, just offerings, right? Burnt offerings. So he's either got some real curious dietary restrictions, or there is something special here. But again, Manoah, he's oblivious. Sure, eat it, set it on fire, whatever. So uh, what's your name? Right? He just goes into the next thing. And this, too, is sort of a loaded question. I mean, we've, I mean, the text refers to this visitor as an angel of the Lord. But, you know, lots of times the distinction between the angel of the Lord and the Lord is really blurry. You know, the, the Bible isn't all that interested in making a clear distinction. You know, is Abraham visited by angels or by God? Is does Jacob wrestle with an angel or with God? It's not clear. There and elsewhere. And so if 
If it's God talking with Manoah and his wife, the name issue is a little weighted. God's protective of the divine name. God commands us not to take it in vain. And typically we think of this as, not, uh, as, a, as forbidding swearing. And it is. But it's also to say that God's name should not be used for some personal agendas, for, for our own benefit. That, too, is taking it in vain. I had a seminary professor uh, who said, you know, if you go to a golf course that offers a discount to clergy, uh, don't take it. Right? Don't take advantage of that, because that is taking the Lord's name in vain. It's using God's name for personal benefit. So, And you thought the only temptation to break the third commandment is while you're playing golf. So it can also be while you're paying for it. Anyway, so Jacob asks, like uh, Manoah, he asks God, or the, the angel, he asks to know the name. And, and, and God there responds like he does here. He simply asks Jacob why he wants to know. And if you remember the story of, you know, if you remember anything about Jacob, you know, there's good reason for some reluctance there. Because Jacob is, is uh, pretty good at taking advantage of people for his own benefit. The difference between God's response to Jacob and his response to Manoah is that with Manoah, God offers uh, more of an explanation for why he won't disclose his name. It's not that I just, it's not just that he's worried about Manoah trying to use it for his personal advantage. He says, it's too wonderful. The NIV translates it, it's beyond your comprehension. So, no, I'm not going to tell you the name because you can't handle it. Um, There's sort of this odd passage, it's fascinating, in, in the Gospel of John. I don't know if you recall this, where the guards come to arrest Jesus. And Jesus asks who they're looking for. And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and the Greek for Jesus' response to that is uh, ego ami, which is a real quirky uh, construction. I mean, ego means I, and that I is redundant because the verb ami implies the I, right? So it's sort of like Jesus says, I I am. Well, scholars believe that that quirky construction is, is intentional. He's not just saying, yeah, I'm the one you're looking for. He's referring to the divine name. Right? It's the Greek version of the name God discloses to Moses at the burning bush. Ego ami is that I am. So Jesus is identifying himself with Yahweh. And so, so check out what happens here. I'll do, this, John 18, verse 6. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, not much is made of this little detail. I mean, the story goes on. Uh, Jesus, you know, Jesus hands himself over and he's, he's uh, arrested and taken off to trial. So what happened there? You know, did, did a guard trip and, you know, the rest of the troop just sort of fall over like dominoes or something? Or what caused them to fall back and fall down is the fact that Jesus said the divine name. There's something about this 
the God-man uttering the divine name that packs such a wallop that it knocks a bunch of burly thugs flat on their butts. Something about that name. Maybe there's something too wonderful about it. Something we can't handle. Anyway, so the angel doesn't uh, say the name and... Manoah doesn't explain why he asks. There's just sort of, I guess, maybe this is sort of an awkward silence while they put out the food for the sacrifice. And then the, the flame goes up from the sacrifice, and all of a sudden, this, the angel or the Lord goes up with the flame. And this scares Manoah out of his gourd. You know, the, the, the man who spent this whole time trying to take control of this story is is undone. Paula quoted to me yesterday, uh, she said that men over the age of 30 rarely learn anything without pain. And I found that rather provocative uh, and, and actually helpful because it explains why every time she's explaining something to me, she punches me in the arm. <laughs> well, she didn't have so much to learn from her. Anyway, now, I'm not sure how legitimate that generalization is, but it's certainly true in Manoah's case. It's only here that Manoah gets it. Only by feeling like he's going to die. Manoah occupied this small little world constructed by and confined to his self-interests. And he kept trying to get that stranger to fit nicely into that little world of his. But what he just witnessed sort of rips, rips the roof off that world. It exposed him to a reality that was too much to handle, that left him feeling helpless, exposed, left him feeling like he was going to die. He, fi- you know, he finally gets the situation and he feels like he's going to die. Manoah's reaction is a good reminder of why the most frequently repeated command in the Bible is what it is. The most frequently repeated command in the Bible is this. Don't be afraid. Whether you're a male over 30 or not, we all have a tendency to create, construct these shallow universes. It is ourselves and our needs and everything else just sort of orbits around that. That's how we make sense of the world and know our place within it. And then when God shows up, we realize what a damnable lie we've been living. You know, being confronted by the, the, the truth of this can be devastating. So devastating that we assume that we're doomed And so time and time again, the first thing that God must say is, no, 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 it's okay. Don't be afraid. It's Manoah's wife that offers the assurance in this passage. She's able to do this, not because, you know, her roof hadn't been ripped off as well. I mean, they both hit the deck when this happens. But she doesn't panic. She's able to make sense of what just happened. Or at least give it some context. And maybe this, is, I, I suspect this is because she's had sort of a different p- 
posture towards these events the whole time. I mean, there's, there's little bits of evidence that she's of, of some reverence some, and some openness and trust rather than desire for control. You know, she's, she's as terrified as Manoah, but she's able to, to give it, again, to give it some perspective. If God were out to kill us, she said, would he have accepted the offering? Would he have announced these things? No, he wouldn't have. So there must be more to this God than the fact that he can blow our worlds apart. He may just be on our side, wanting our good. He may rip the roof off our world, but in doing so, he may be opening us up to something new, something greater, something like heaven. You know, there is something about the life of faith that can make it seem a bit of a joke. You know, uh, Friday, Mike, Ray, and Al Planiga spent some time discussing thinkers who are convinced that this life of faith is a joke. And it can feel a bit preposterous at times, calling someone savior who was publicly and humiliatingly executed. Seeing him not as just a warning to avoid, but as an example to follow. You know, the temptation is to try to get our faith to fit neatly within our shallow universes. We want God to occupy a nice little spot we've designated for him. The spot where we've determined he'll be most useful, where, among other things, he can you know, disclose his little plan for us now and again. But the fact is, sooner or later, the roof's coming off that sucker. In small chunks or in one grand sweep, we will be exposed to the truth, the truth of our own frailty, of our own dependence, our own mortality. But don't be afraid. Don't live in fear of this inevitable future. Simply commit yourself again to the tasks of obedience. Even if your shallow world remains intact, begin now to live faithfully to God's will, to live a life directed by that invisible reality. Because then, even when we are confronted by death, we will not be afraid. We will remember that God accepted the offering the ultimate sacrifice, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will know there is death, but we will hold on to the hope of resurrection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we are continually tempted to create a shallow universe in which our needs are at the center. Be merciful to us, O oh God. 
expose us to that greater reality in ways in which enable us to not only come to terms with our own frailty, our own mortality, but do so in a way that exposes us to the new reality that you have made available to us. Even as our futures remain wide open and, and vague, help us to do your will now and to trust that in doing so that you are, again, opening us to new realities. That in losing our self-centered, shallow ones, we are being transformed and made ready for the eternal and glorious future. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, we will be singing uh, the summons, and then people, they should remain seated until the last verse. So. There'll be instructions on the screen. <laughs> opportunity to gather together in worship and hearing the word and in a fellowship of believers. 
For our local church community, we thank you for the beginning of a new era with the arrival of Pastor Rhoda and his family. We ask that you would work through them and through the broader congregation as we learn how you would have us minister to each other. We thank you for the life of Evelyn Kornstra, who is the only charter member of SBCRC who is still a member of our congregation. As she turns 89 today, we pray that our church might continue to minister to her and that her life might continue to be a blessing to her loved ones. We pray for Tammy Green as she continues to wait for a donor for a double lung transplant. We lift up to you the Devosts in their ministry in Ukraine, the Captains in translating the Bible in Cameroon, and Meg Genista as she begins her ministry in Kalamazoo. As they all face inevitable trials, please fill them with trusting spirits, compassionate hearts, and prophetic words. We lift up to you especially the Christians in Orissa in India. We are told that in their persecution by mobs of Hindu nationalists, at least 16 people have been killed, at least 10,000 have had to flee their homes, and many churches, schools, and homes have been destroyed. We ask that they might find deliverance sooner rather than later. In either case, we ask that your spirit would be with them in a special way through these times, that they might be more deeply bonded to you and to one another, and they might be faithful witnesses of the spirit of Christ, as so many persecuted believers have done before them. We pray for the many people recently struck by hurricanes, especially throughout the Caribbean islands and around the Gulf of Mexico, that the rebuilding of their communities might be successful and that their many sufferings would not be without spiritual comfort and growth. We pray that as our federal government undertakes a massive intervention in the financial system, which will tangibly affect so many lives, that you would grant to them some measure of the tremendous wisdom and foresight that will be required to do so justly and beneficially. We ask as our local, state, and federal elections approach that you might mitigate the spirit of distortion and narrow partisanship. Please enable candidates and voters to think and speak seriously about what the most valuable political goals may be and how we as a society may best reach them. Please be with the many peoples whose governing officials blatantly abuse their authority, especially in Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Sudan, Russia, Myanmar, and North Korea. We also lift up to you the disorder and violence in Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan as they undergo political transitions. Please be with those, those of your people who are not subject to grave needs or frequent brutality, but who face an endless barrage of novel pleasures and easy distractions. Strengthen us to be a distinctive people who increasingly resist these allures, however apparently harmless, and instead long first to taste more of your goodness and to put on more of your holiness. Help us to become more worthy of the calling we have received. Help us to be a model of spiritual richness and genuine affection to our neighbors. Renew the minds and spirits of our people so that the hearts of the fathers and mothers might return to their children and the hearts of the children might return to their fathers and mothers. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Giving is an act of worship, uh, an act that unsells us and makes us even more aware of the grace and provision of God. So we come to worship through our giving. Um, the first offering goes towards the life and ministries of this congregation, and the second goes towards Covenant Christian Schools. Please take time to fill out the welcome pads, which you'll find at the one side of the uh, pews.
Hi, my name is Brooke Peterson, and myself and Sally Bottenheimer are the youth directors here. And we have a video about the youth at our church um, that we wanted to show you, and then I wanted to uh, tell you a little bit about them and make an announcement about that after the video. So enjoy just taking a peek at who some of the youth are at our church. One of our um, high schoolers made that and did a wonderful job. Um, Seth A. Paul, thank you. Um, I, this is a start. Yeah, woo, Seth. <laughs> this is the start of my um, fourth year here working at the church um, with the youth, and I have been blessed every single year with a wonderful crew of volunteer leaders. They have been amazing. Um, and pretty much every year we've had a good uh, seven to ten adults that have been hanging out with these teens relationally, and uh, it really has made the ministry such a powerful thing. Um, and in the course of 2008, um, one after another of them have had, for various reasons, to leave the youth ministry. And we've lost nine youth leaders in 2008. And so I am here to talk to you and ask you to ask God whether or not this might be your calling. Um, if you love God and you like hanging out with teenagers, then this is probably the right place for you. If you can have fun and you like to laugh... Um, this is definitely the right place for you. So if you think um, that you might be willing to step up and relationally get involved with some teenagers at this church, please um, come see myself, come see Sally, and, uh, and talk to us about uh, this ministry. And um, we would love to have you. And then also, one of the things we do is we serve lunch at Hope Ministries um, the first Saturday of every month. And because of the loss in youth leaders, we've asked families to um, step up and do that. And this coming... Um, October, the first Saturday, we don't have anyone yet. So if you are willing to do that um, as a family in this church, even if you don't have teenagers, um, please come talk to us about that as well. Uh, believe me, you will have so much fun, and you will not regret seeing how God moves in their lives and in your life. Thank you. Are there any other announcements? 
Good morning. My name is David Hatch, and our church has the opportunity of joining with Habitat for Humanity next Saturday morning at 8 o'clock and help uh, family build, uh, begin building her home. Uh, the founder of Habitat for Humanity uh, based the whole organization on a number of Christian principles, one of which is that everyone can serve. And just this morning, I've had two people come up to me and basically say, I really can't serve because I don't know how to hammer a nail. Well, let's, uh, that's not the way Habitat works. We want everyone to come, and especially those of you who don't know nothing about construction. Uh, we'd love to have you there. That's the way it gets done. Now, those of you who know a lot about construction, great. You'll be teaching the rest of us how to do the work. Um, but we want everyone to be there. We need about 15 people uh, from our congregation Saturday, so there's a sign-up list right by the kitchen door. So please sign up and be there this Saturday at 8 o'clock. Thank you. My wife, Lisa, will be taking uh, photos to update our church directory after the service, right out through these doors to the leftover sign out there for something that says, meet me here. Uh, so we'll take that spot. I have a long list of folks from Paula who are either new or need updates because they've had kids. So I will be tracking people down and pulling them over. But please don't wait for me to do that because we don't want to miss anybody. Uh, if you're new would like to get a page in the directory, just Come over there and uh, get your picture taken. We'll be doing it for the next three weeks. Uh, so if you're not dressed appropriately today and you want to look really cool, you know, come uh, better dress next week. How would that be? Yeah, like myself. <laughs> Is somebody going to announce the lunch? Do we need to announce that? if you've been wondering who this person is that gets referred to now and then. And um, as part of the hospitality team, I would, again, um, encourage anyone who is new to, uh, to our church, any student, any grad student who's here today would like to have a free lunch. We've got some wonderful soups and two six-foot subs. There's plenty of food, and it's all free. And um, we also uh, give you a chance to interact with the staff and meet us and get to know us a little better, and you'll meet some new friends, so I hope you'll come. All right, let us stand up and sing our closing hymn, Glory Be to the Father, Psalter Hymnal 635. Sent into the world, sent to extend God's grace and forgiveness, sent to instill hope and give guidance, sent to bear witness to freedom.
We are sent by the Holy Spirit to God. Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you and give you his peace. Go in peace. Most of them, their bodies were scattered over the desert. That is an amazing passage of Scripture if you think about it. He talks about all of these evidences of the power of God and the work of God in setting Israel free in the book that we know in the Bible called the Exodus. Many of you have probably seen that, you know, the, the, the movie that featured Charlton Heston and the Exodus. God's just massive, miraculous deliverance of His people from bondage and slavery. He springs them free by miraculous activity. These people experience the profound blessing of God. And you know when I get to verse 5, I read something that is, should be startling. Yet with most of them, God was not pleased. That is not what I expected when I got to the end of verse 4. So the first principle that I want to kind of point out to you this morning, emerging out of this, is this. Blessings and privileges in your Christian life do not guarantee future success. Okay, the experience of the power of God and of the blessing of God in your life does not guarantee future success. There's a word that emerges in verses 1 through 3, and it's the little word all, A-L-L. When I read it, I tried to emphasize that for you. you. You can technically, it comes up four or five times in just two or three verses. They all, they all, they all. But with most of them, God was not well pleased. They all experienced great privileges and blessings from God. Namely, we could summarize it as the blessing of God's deliverance when Israel is delivered from slavery and bondage in Egypt by a leader named Pharaoh, who I would argue is a type of Christ, one who mediates between the destroyer Pharaoh and the people of God. He stands in between and negotiates under the power and authority of God a deliverance for the people of God. You can jump ahead in the Bible and it says there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Okay, He mediates for us. Moses is, I think, a type of, a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. He is the one who comes alongside and negotiates a deliverance for the people of God. Now, what about those people? What did they experience? And I just want to give you from these verses a couple things. It says, they were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea at the end of verse 1. They were all under the cloud. What is that talking about? You say, oh, i got a cloud over my day today. That's not a good thing, right? I'm having kind of a gloomy day. It's a little bit cloudy today. Okay, for Israel, this was the very glory and presence of God. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, it tells us about the deliverance of Israel as a nation from Egypt, that when they came out of Egypt, they went into the wilderness and began to wander, but they experienced a a fascinating and unique blessing 
called the personal presence of God. Exodus 13 and verse 21. You have two million people delivered from slavery. They, they go out not knowing where they're going, just knowing that God has just worked a miracle and set us free. The power of God. How are they going to be protected? How are they going to be guided? Exodus 13 and verse 21. By day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the, neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. What is Moses talking about? He's talking about what in the Old Testament was called the Shekinah glory of God that was captured in the daytime in a pillar of cloud that guided them, visible, visible presence of God, manifestation of God. At night it would transform into a pillar of fire that would bring heat and protection and guidance for the people of Israel. They are led out of Egypt, a supernatural deliverance, and then God's personal presence comes alongside of them in a miraculous fashion that I am sure had to astonish them. Saying, Moses, what is that? Or Moses, what is that? Moses would indicate and teach to them that this was God's personal presence and guidance with His people. They enjoyed the manifest and powerful presence of God. They also experienced 